Hey everyone, so glad to have you with us. What a blessing to be able to worship together. What a blessing to be able to not only think of God, but to really welcome and tune in to how God's moving. I pray that this service has been a blessing and a help to you. And I pray that this time has been just another time as you worship and grow um, in your faith and as we worship and grow as a body. This morning, we're continuing our current sermon series, which is following the commands of Christ. We've kind of um, set this up as like, this is going back to the basics. You know, if we are going to call our ourselves followers of Christ, then we actually have to follow Christ. And so we need to know the basics of our faith. And, and establishing the basics of your faith or establishing that foundation first comes out with saying God is indeed our source. You know, the source is origin, where we come from, but it's also where we go to learn and, and obtain information. God as our source is revealed to the Holy Spirit, who's our guide, um, that not only illuminates scriptures, but really makes the path straight for us. Uh, God reveals himself as Father, which is home for us, the place where we we have refuge and strength where we can be ourselves and be truly loved and, and loved as God has created us to be loved. And, and lastly, God reveals himself through Jesus Christ. And, and, and in Jesus Christ, we have the example, the model of how we are to live. So following the commandment of Christ then says that we are going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He's the one we surrender to. He's the one we submit to. He's the one we choose to follow. So this whole series is trying to look at some of the things that Jesus asked of us and and how do we walk in them? What does that look like? So this morning we're going to be talking about love your neighbor through the lens of probably one of Jesus' most famous teaching or stories. Um, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 25 to 37. Um, but I'm just going to open up our time in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing and privilege it is to follow you. We thank you so much for these basics that as we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we submit and surrender to the Spirit. We submit and surrender to the Son. We submit and surrender to you, Father. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for these commands, how they not only transform us, but they, they, they help us to look and live and be like you. So Lord, we pray this morning that through this testimony, through this witness, through this sermon, through our listening, through your Spirit fine-tuning everything that's happened in this service, that we can truly be people who are not only changed, but in our world, that we can live and love like Jesus lived and loved. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I'll be reading Luke 10, starting at verse 25. So Luke 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? 
The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You know, one of the challenges of preaching familiar passages is that, you know, People know it. People know the story. They know the whole point of the story. They've studied it. Uh, for a lot of people, some of these familiar passages are, are, are almost like life mantras or philosophies. They know it. But, but, but just like preaching unfamiliar passages, every time you preach, you know, you still have to, at least I've learned, I still have to rely on the Spirit for illumination. I have to rely on the Spirit to, to, to use me as an instrument and a vessel. When I first started preaching, I was very young. I was 14 years old. So preaching for me was a faith exercise, and it still is, right? But my early part of the faith exercise, preaching was more like throwing spaghetti on the wall, right? Like you just throw the spaghetti on the wall and hope it sticks, right? And that was my mindset was just like, God, this is what you gave me. I hope it gets people. I hope they get something to it. But now I think that the faith exercise has kind of changed a little bit for me. And what it is now, it's a a, a service. And what I mean by that is, you know, God illuminates the scriptures or God um, opens up the passage to me or says, hey, this is where I think you need to go. But that service then is me also saying, God, I want to be an instrument. I want to be a vessel. And I think where I've transformed the most is I'm not just throwing it against the wall. Now when we preach or when we teach and we share even these familiar stories, we trust that God is going to move, that God is going to reveal, that God is going to enhance it for you. Now, the other thing about familiar stories is you tend to go into them thinking you know everything about them. And actually, before I even knew I was preaching the sermon this morning, a couple months back, I realized that my whole life, this story I just read has been called The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan Story. And months ago, God kind of taught me the first thing about this message this morning is that you think you know everything about this story. Well, first of all, you got the name all wrong. And I was like, what do you mean I got the name all wrong? That's the name that was taught in Sunday school. I've heard sermons about this. When I look around even our world, you see how this story has has made it to culture. We have charities that are named after Good Samaritans. We have hospitals that are named after Good Samaritans. States have laws that are Good Samaritan laws, all kind of pointing you to the idea of like you are meant to help. But it was an author, Lisa Sharon Harper, I think in her book, Very Good Gospel, kind of shed light on something new when it comes to Good Samaritan. She says, we have to think about the inherent bias that we bring in. And it sounds a little bit different. I know it is because, again, your whole life you probably thought this was the Good Samaritan story. And one of the things that she really helped me see is that, you know, we all know about the racial tension, the racial divide and, and everything. But in saying the Good Samaritan It would be like me telling a story and say, hey, I want to tell you a story about the good black guy or or the good white lady or or the good Latino grandma. See, in our culture, when we hear that, that, that should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because if we're saying the good Samaritan, we're actually carrying on that same bias that Samaritans aren't good. This is like a a shock that, oh my gosh, this is the good one. The rest of them are bad, but this is the good one. So that was the first lesson I feel like God taught me was just like, stop calling it the good Samaritan. And the the more I studied this story this week, I realized that maybe not the, the, the focus isn't just on what the Samaritan does, but maybe the focus is on 
who is my neighbor and how to love my neighbor. Because that's how the story begins, isn't it? So I've gone from calling this the parable of the Good Samaritan to simply the parable of the one who loved like Jesus. Now, it sounds a little bit corny, maybe, and it's not as familiar as Good Samaritan, but that's the one I want to pick because I think Jesus's point isn't for us to take our bias against Samaritans and be like, well, that's the Good Samaritan. But he wants us to know that this is about loving your neighbor. This is the parable about the one who loves like me. Loving your neighbor, then, is not about the Samaritan being extraordinary. So what is it about? Loving your neighbor is really a call to every ordinary Jesus Christ follower. It's not just enough to say, oh, this is not the good Samaritan, but it's the call for us to recognize that God actually desires all of us to live and love and walk this way. So the question becomes, how is Jesus calling you to live? And are you living to Jesus's standard? And those are the two questions I kind of want to anchor as we go back into the text. How is Jesus calling us to live? And are we living up to Jesus's standard. Last week, we started talking a little bit about how the, the brilliance and genius of Jesus is that he uses common sense as a teacher. He's able to, to meet his people where they're at and then take them to where he desires them to be. We said this is a fundamental skill of good teachers that they're able to build on what is known and then teach you something new. So in this story, Jesus is going to use a lot of familiar things and teach us something new. Jesus gifts the, the kind of love that leads to life, and that's what he wants us to understand in this story, is that we are to be like him. We are to gift the kind of love that brings life. So our story begins with an expert of the law. You know, some translations call this a lawyer, but, but in our context, when we think lawyer, we think courtroom. You know, this is actually closer to a rabbi. This is closer to someone who has studied the law, who knows the law of Moses, the law of the Torah, in and out. And this person questions Jesus. And the question is kind of like a philosophical question that, that in that culture, you know, reminds me of me being a uh, student at Messiah College, right? We thought we were so deep and we had all these discussions. We're going to save the world with our, 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 our arguments. But this person wants to use a common uh, rhetorical philosophical question. And that is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The rabbi or the law expert wants to see, one, does Jesus know the law? He's supposed to be the Messiah, but I know more than him. How is that possible? Jesus, do you even know and understand the law? And he also then, the flip side of that, maybe the, the complimentary side of that is, he wants to prove that he actually knows the law better. But I love about Jesus is that he answers him with a question. You know, I had to learn that, that, that a lot of people don't always like the answers given to them right away. They like actually, you know, figuring it out or going on that journey. And I think Jesus does that brilliantly time and time again. But he actually answers him here with, with two questions. And the first one is, uh, well, well, what is written in the law? Like, how do you read it? So whereas this guy wants to test and put Jesus on trial, Jesus takes that and knows all this is going on, but he flips it by simply asking, well, well, what does the law say, expert? Like, how do you understand it? And the expert recites two of probably the most famous verses in the Torah, but also in Judaism even today. He recites the simple, um, the after uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, this Deuteronomy 6, 5, after the Shema, or this idea that God is one and God is our God. God is the one we follow. 
The immediate commandment after that is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he goes to Leviticus, which is another chapter that, that the, the ancient Jews and even Jews today look at as, as moral teaching or moral commandments that comes from God. And he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is then going to take what he knows and add something new, because that's what a good teacher does. And after Jesus asks this, Jesus just, after the man answers this, Jesus says, well, you nailed it. You've answered correctly. If you want to live, if you want to have eternal life, but you also, if you want to live and thrive in this life that you're in right now, just do that. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you shall live. Now, what's fascinating is in Leviticus 19, neighbor is presented two ways, right? Neighbor is understood both in, in two verses in Leviticus 19, one as, you know, proximity, right? People who are close to you. So that means that like not only people who live around you, but, but in this context to Jews, like that's your neighbors. Love the people who are like you. But also Leviticus 19 also calls you to not only love your neighbor that's your kin, but to also love the foreigner, the immigrant, the alien, the stranger, to the people who are not like you. So when the expert says, who's my neighbor, Jesus is going to take what he understands about loving God with all our heart and the entirety of our being, about what it means to love your neighbor, and that's not just Jews, that's supposed to be everybody, and Jesus is going to build on that. And to build on that, he tells this familiar story. In the story, a man is going down from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, Martin Luther King actually, at least in my culture, or at least in my family, made this story famous. I think it's in his mountaintop speech. And he talked about how the road from Jerusalem to Jericho wasn't just going from high to, to low, from, from above sea level to below sea level, but it was actually called the way of blood. It was, it was a windy road that, that had all these places that, that people can hide and, and come out. So even in this windy road, they call it the way of blood because to travel alone was to invite trouble. Traveling alone was not advised. So Jesus, in saying a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, the first thing that would have been inherited in that culture is that he's talking probably about a Jewish man. The second thing that would have been inherent in that is just like, what is he doing going on the way of blood by himself? What is wrong with this guy? So when Jesus says he's been attacked, he's been robbed, and he's left for dead, everyone listening would have been like, yeah, that's why you don't go on the way of blood by yourself. You know, like, that's why you don't take that trip by yourself. But what's fascinating here for me is that when he's attacked, they don't just take his valuables, they strip him down of even his clothes. And in that culture, that would have been very, very valuable, yes. But they leave him for dead. And then Jesus talks about two people who first come. The first is the priest. And, and then the priest, you know, we usually tell the story like, well, the priest had all these other set of laws, and they weren't allowed to touch dead bodies, and they got to worry about impurity. But again, if the priest is actually coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho, more than likely, he's finished his priestly duties. He doesn't necessarily have to worry about the impurity because he's not going to temple worship. But even more than that, the fact that he chose to pass on the other side meant that he's choosing legalism or, or temple rules over the higher law, which was to love and to show mercy. God would forgive 
If your clothes got a little dirty in the name of loving someone in need, God would forgive and make it possible for you to be redeemed, even as a priest, if you actually loved like God and loved that person. But he chose to to, to pass on the other side. And then Jesus talks about a different kind of priest, a Levite, which was maybe not not the highest rung of priests, but still these would have been committed people to the faith. And this Levite also chooses to avoid the impurity, and he also chooses to, to pass by on the other side. But then a Samaritan shows up. And I think one of the things that's fascinating here is this is the part where we go to, to all the differences between Jews and Samaritans. And man, there was differences. Man, there was no love lost between the two. In fact, you know, it, it was not just a tit for tat, but this was generational. This was centuries. This was decades upon decades. Between one side who feels like you've turned away from the faith and you've disobeyed God and your entire race of people, Samaritans, are actually, they would consider them an abomination to God because they weren't faithful in following God. And then the Jews felt so strongly that, that they actually went and destroyed the Samaritan temple. And the Samaritan says, if you're going to destroy a temple, we're actually going to desecrate yours by putting human bones in your temple. So to say that there's no love lost here would be kind of a a mild statement. There's hostility, and it's based on tribal loyalties. Now, in our culture... We try to find ways to connect. And, and one of the ways we find to connect, we say, like, well, the, and, and a lot of teachers have done this. It's like, well, it's racial tension. So it's kind of like, you know, the black and white tension in America. And I grew up thinking that was true. But the thing is, it's not. Because this isn't about one group that has all the power and, and, and is, is, is literally has the power, the privilege, and, and is the one who is literally oppressing the other group. These are both oppressed peoples. These are both people from the same family. It's not the black-white tension maybe helps us see it a little bit, but it's not the exact same thing. You know, the, the, the Samaritans and the Jews were both under Roman rule at the time of this story. You know, the Samaritans weren't like the African Americans who this week really took a, a punch to the gut because a lot of us knew that the officers who killed Breonna Taylor weren't going to be convicted. And it's a sad reality to know that before it happens and then to see it happen. And I think one of the things that's even uh, more, more heartbreaking, at least for me, was that no one was charged with the killing of a person who was sleeping. And the only charges were for actually shooting the wall of her neighbor's apartment. Kind of retelling the story to a lot of African American or black people in this country that America will always value property over even our bodies. So, no, the Jews and Samaritans are not like black and white in America. They're not. What they are, though, is one family. And I think that's important to understanding this story. They both worship God, yet hated each other. It's about the family that Jesus is talking about. They both would say God is God, yet they've openly despised one another. So when Jesus introduces the Samaritan here, everybody listening would be waiting for the hero of the story. But they would be like, why are you choosing not just a distant relative, but the one we've disowned? Why are you choosing the person who's not like us? Why are you choosing the one that we openly hate and don't even acknowledge? Yet Jesus brings the Samaritan onto the scene. 
And the Samaritan is the one who actually loves the way God loves us. And we see it because this love is risky. The Samaritan, as far as we know, is also alone on the way of blood. There's no saying if the robbers are still around or if they're waiting for the next prey. The, the man is left half dead. He could have been dying. He could have been having um, infections, all these things. But the Samaritan saw him. He went to him. And then he took pity and had compassion on him. That to me is a challenge of how I am to interact with people who are hurting. Do I see their hurt? Do I go to them? And do I show compassion to them? So the Samaritan goes down and he cleans and disinfects the man's wounds. He, he takes the man to a place of help by, by lifting him up and putting him on his own donkey. He goes and he cares for him throughout the night. And then he, he gets the innkeeper and assures that the man will be cared for for as long as he's gone. He actually assures the debt that this man will accrue. And he pledges to pay for his care. Everyone listening would have been like, yes, this is the hero of the story. So when Jesus says, you know, you ask, who is my neighbor? Who's the neighbor to the fallen man? And everyone would know it was not the priest. It was not the Levite. It was indeed the Samaritan. And I don't know why that the expert of the law couldn't even verbalize Samaritan. Some people have said maybe it's because he just hates them so much or, or he didn't want to accept defeat. But I know that his answer gave them away because he says, no, the one who's actually the hero of the story, the one who's a neighbor to the fallen man, is the one who had mercy on him. Jesus says, yes, the one who had mercy on him. And then he says, go and do likewise. The point of this story is not that the Samaritan is extraordinary. The point of this story is that every single follower of Jesus is compelled to, is commanded to, is called to go and do likewise. Because it's easy to love those who love us back. It's easy to care for those who care for us also. It's easy to love the healthy. It's harder to love the sick. It's easy to love the people whose life is going well and everything's beautiful and amazing. It's harder to love people who've had a rough time, who are still having a rough time, who are struggling. But Jesus' command is mercy, and Jesus' command is to go and do likewise. Jesus asks us, Jesus calls us, Jesus commands us as followers to do more. If we want to live the call is to live and love like Jesus lived and loved. So I think if we understand this story as a whole and move it from how extraordinary the Samaritan was to how ordinary God wants all of us to be living and walking this way, I think there's four things that kind of help us hold on to this story. The first one and the first lesson is that God expects his followers to live life. But that life that he calls us to live is actually the life that involves loving God with our entire heart. Mind, body, soul. Love God with the entirety of your being. For me, I found this to be a pledge. 
So every day, for as long as I can remember, one of my prayers has always been, God, help me to love you more today than I did yesterday. God, help me to take a step closer to you, to take a baby step closer to you, so I'm further along than I was yesterday. It's a pledge I try to make every single day. And maybe you can too. But it's also our plight. Meaning it's also what we're actually going to do. So God doesn't just want us to say, I want to love you more. God wants us to actively work to love him more. And the way I found to do that is to simply choose mercy, choose compassion, choose grace, choose to love the way Jesus loved. And speaking of loving the way Jesus loved... I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus goes through, um, not, in, not, not, not only in this passage, but this idea to love your neighbor is not simply treat others how you want to be treated. The idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is not even like loving the way you feel like you should be loved. Because look at this story. Love here is risky. Love here is cleaning and disinfecting the wound. Love here is taking the person to a place of help using your own resources. Love here is assuring the care for the other. Love here is pledging to pay for that care. It's not just treating them how you want to be treated. No, it's loving the way God loves. So if love is risky, we must stop passing by on the other side. In God... We are family. He created all of us. In Christ, we are one. He died for all of us. In the spirit, we are part of God's body, Jesus' body. So the question to all of us becomes, how is Jesus calling us to live? What is the standard that we are to have here? And that standard has to be to stop passing by on the other side. When we see people who are hurt, when we see people who are struggling, when we see people who are, are going through the rough of this life has to offer them, our job is not to worry about ourselves. Our job is not to focus on, on how we can stay holy and clean. Our job is not to look at them and say, wow, you might be dead or struggling, but I'm just going to turn my eye and go on the other side. Our job is to love the way God loves. And what is that way? is the way that chooses mercy, is the way that chooses compassion, is the way that truly cares, is the way that chooses mercy again. And I want to end with mercy because a lot of times mercy kind of harkens to this Old Testament concept of hesed or the, the New Testament concept of agape. And what it boils down to is simply, are we willing to love the way God loved? And I said earlier that this is Jews and Samaritans is an intra-family conflict. And I think that's important for us to remember as we think about how we're loving one another. Because every single person in this world has been created by God. They're your sisters. They're your brothers. And there's some of us who actually have more of a problem with people who actually choose to follow Jesus. People in our, our birth families or people in our church families. We have inter-family conflicts, not just with the, the greater world around us, but with people who also believe in God and follow Jesus. The call is not only reconciliation. The call is not only to make things right. The call is to love one another the way God loves us. The Good Samaritan 
may be a misnomer. But the truth of this story has always been, if you follow God, it is time you start looking like God. If you love God, it's time you start loving like God. And if there's anyone who's struggling or hurting or on the side of the road half dead, it is not your work to turn the eye and pass by on the other side. It is your call, it is your command to follow God by loving like Jesus would love in that situation. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that in Jesus Christ we have an example. We thank you so much that despite ourselves, despite everything we make, despite all the, the, the tension and brokenness, that you still call us to love. So Lord, we pray that you help us to love the way you love so that we can live the way you lived. In your name, amen. I think one of the greatest truths God's probably revealed to me, and something I've been saying for as long as I can remember now, is that to follow Jesus is basically living and loving like Jesus. I think that has been, um, I don't know if there's one thing that's changed my life or one thing, mantra I have, but it's been that one. And I think this story this morning reminds us that this is not just a, a cute bumper sticker or a good saying. It's the work that we all have to do. So my challenge for us this week as we go out is simply this. How are you living like Jesus lived? How are you loving like Jesus loved? How are you going to the hurting? Are you even seeing the hurting? How are you bandaging wounds and bringing healing? How are you using your resources for actually the betterment of those who are in pain and those who are hurting? How are you being ordinary with your extraordinary love? How are you living and loving like Jesus? Father God, we thank you so much that Jesus is the way. We thank you so much that we don't just have the story, but we have the life of Jesus, the example of Jesus, who was willing to give up everything, heaven, life on earth, the breath in his lungs, so that we can come home again, so that through your forgiveness, we can be made whole. We can come home as children of God. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray now, that in our lives, that we're loving the way you love so that we can live the way you lived. Lord, call our hearts to the things that not only break your heart, but fix our eyes on the hurting, the struggling, the people who are just in the rough, in the depths of, of despair and are just, are just struggling so much right now. Help us to not only see them, but help us to go to them. Help us to, with your spirits, help heal them and help us to bring life to them. Lord, help us in all things to live and love like you live and loved. In your holy and precious name, amen.